0: Hey everybody, it's been a while, but I'm going to start recording my lectures here, uh, both video that I'm going to be uploading to YouTube and I will provide a link to that in the description and for my students, for those of y'all on Canvas and our online classrooms and everything, and I'll provide a link to the Anchor podcast that's going to be available on Spotify and through Anchor as well. But last time I saw everyone, we had left off talking about World War I and how the United States is changing in this new world order that's going on and what was kind of happening. So I just wanted to recap what's going on there with you guys, starting back with the turn of the century, Teddy Roosevelt being president. Uh, and like I mentioned, he likes to quote this African proverb quite a bit called walk southly and carry a big stick. You know, you want to tread lightly, be careful, but also know that, make everyone know that you are not to be messed with, that you are still strong and powerful. But in the Caribbean, he's not really going to be doing this. So with regards to foreign policy, he's going to be a bit different when it comes to the Caribbean. So, in 1902, so following the Spanish-American War, uh, Cuba was granted independence in 1902. The United States started reorganizing the country's finances. And they wrote into this new Cuban constitution what was called the Platt Amendment. So, if you look on your uh, Chapter 23 PowerPoints, that's where you're going to find that I'm picking up here. So, it's right on around the fourth slide or so. Uh, But this Platt Amendment, what it's doing is it gives American authorities the right to intervene if Cuban independence or internal order is threatened in some way. And Roosevelt was worried about European intentions, European nations interfering in the Caribbean and Latin America. So uh, back in 1823, if you remember the Monroe Doctrine, this declared uh, any further European... Colonization in the Western Hemisphere is going to be explicitly prohibited. It's not supposed to happen anymore. Uh, But early in the 20th century, there's going to be a lot of rising debt in Latin American countries and in the Caribbean. And so it starts to kind of invite some European intrusion to these countries in this region. So in 1904, the Dominican Republic, which used to be the country of, or the colony, actually, the Spanish colony of Santo Domingo, which is the uh, western half, or the right half of the island of Hispaniola. The eastern, or left half, is uh, now Haiti, which declared their independence in the late 1800s, 18th century, and early 1800s, early 19th century. They reorganized as the Republic of Haiti, but Uh, Dominican Republic they default on their debts in 1904 and so Teddy Roosevelt being president he adds the Roosevelt corollary to the Monroe Doctrine and this claims that the U.S. then has the right to intervene directly if Latin Americans fail to meet their obligations to European countries and over in the Far East like looking at China and Asia especially uh Roosevelt, he's going to be a little more creative, a little more ingenious, use some ingenuity in the Far East instead of being more forceful, like he's going to be in the Caribbean and Latin America. So he considers Asia to be more beyond the American sphere of influence. So he's like, well, let's be a little more tactful where they're concerned. So right around the same time, when you're looking at other big countries, They're starting to really scale up their military and their industrial strength. And Japan is no exception. The island nation of Japan is no exception. Because a few decades before, they had seen American warships traveling around the world. And they realized that they are just not going to be able to keep up with. This and the capabilities that they already had. They were very feudal and agricultural society still. And so they started industrializing everything. And to show their strength, Japan is going to attack Russian holdings in the Chinese province of Manchuria. And And Roosevelt, uh, whenever this happens in the Russo-Japanese War, it's known as, he offers to mediate. The dispute. And both sides, the Russians and the Japanese will meet in uh, Portsmouth, New Hampshire at the U.S. Naval Base that's near there. And under Roosevelt's guidance and influence, they are able to produce the Treaty of Portsmouth in 1905. And what the Treaty of Portsmouth did was it recognizes that the Japanese are victorious with this conflict. And this is the first time an Asian power is going to be Successful and victorious over a European power. In this instance, it was Russia. And it gives up territory, the Russian territory on the Asian mainland to Japan. And Japan promised that they would leave the Manchurian province as and being part of China. You know, it's not going to be theirs. They'll leave it as part of China as long as they keep trade open to all foreign countries. And so the balance of power in Asia is re- maintained. The open door for trade in China is preserved here. And so Roosevelt's diplomacy is actually going to end up earning him the Nobel Peace Prize in 1906. He's the first American president able to win the Nobel Peace Prize. And, and right around the same time in 1906, there's a lot of rising Japanese uh, hostility or hostility towards the Japanese in America and some racism going on, especially in San Francisco. And school authorities put the only 93 Asian students that they have in a completely separate school. They start their own segregation ordinance. And Roosevelt invites the mayor, he summons him really, to the White House. And he exchanges for a segregation order. He's like, okay, to get rid of that segregation order, here's what I'm going to do. And so he offers to have a restriction of immigration between Japan and the United States. It is mutual. In 1907, this takes place. And so all the sides go ahead and agree and accept it. And they call it a gentleman's agreement because it was pretty amicable. Nobody really up in arms and causing a lot of uh, ruckus over it, so to speak. But uh, there starts to kind of be some rumors spreading that Japan is going to overtake Hawaii. Around this time, or maybe the Philippines, the Panama Canal, even. And in case Japan or any other country wants to try and upset this uh, balance in the Pacific between all the major powers in the world, Roosevelt ends up sending 16 brand new battleships straight off the line on a world tour in 1902. And the it kind of has an unintended consequence because like I said, it definitely prompts the Japanese into expanding their own Navy once they see this. So yeah, I mean, they definitely were able to be victorious with the Russo Japanese war not long after this, but it's not, it's going to kind of set us back a few decades down the road with uh, world war two. And with the, Taft, moving on to the next presidency, William Howard Taft, uh, rather than using like force or finesse, Taft, instead, he's going to be opting instead for these uh, private investors to promote the economic stability in Caribbean and the Caribbean and Latin America uh, to try and keep the peace and also tie these debt-ridden countries to the U.S. So, Taft and his Secretary of State, who was known as Flander, P-H-I-L-A-N-D-E-R, Knox, K-N-O-X, like Fort Knox. Uh, Philander Knox is the secretary of state under William Howard Taft. Uh, they, the two of these guys, they're going to treat Latin American countries is basically from a business standpoint, they're failing corporations. And so it's like, well, let's inject a lot of capital investment here, reorganize all the management, you know, we'll send up funds to help prop up and float these industries and businesses change up the leadership of the government. So they're approaching it from a very businessman's point of view. And by the time Taft leaves office in 1913, about half of all American investments abroad are going to be in Latin America alone. So Taft is really, really investing a lot of money into these Latin American countries at the time when nobody else is really considering it. And it's going to tie us to these countries and we won't be able to really leave necessarily for quite some time. Because we have so much money invested in them. And it's taking a long time to try and prop them up and get them stable again. But in the Caribbean, this dollar diplomacy of Taft that he's using here... It's going to be linked very closely with some unpopular regimes and corporations, banks, industries. And so Wilson, Woodrow Wilson, when he becomes president, as soon as he enters the White House, pretty much right away he scraps this entire project for the most part. And in 1912, there's going to be a revolution in Nicaragua that... uh, this is going to be Taft's last year in office. He's going to be sending 2,000 Marines there to protect American interests. And there's kind of some sporadic American intrusions that last more than a dozen years. So, it, like I said, it takes us a while to kind of get out of this region. And then moving on to the next president, Woodrow Wilson. Good old Woodrow Wilson. So, Wilson, he's wanting to try and revive... Jefferson's ideas of the United States as being this big, huge, shining beacon of freedom throughout the world, right? And Wilson, he views these Anglo-Americans or white Americans as being superior to others in the world. And he wants to spread this Western-style democracy and capitalism, morality and values, things of that nature, through force. I mean, it's a very poorly-veiled attempt That's really trying to spread American superiority throughout the world. Because you got to think this is also right in the time of nativism. That's also at its height. That's uh, the ideal that native born Americans, especially of the Anglo-Saxon race, are superior to especially immigrants or anyone that's not of their race. It's uh, very... Ku Klux Klan racist and prejudice in a way. But through all these efforts going on with Wilson and trying to spread democracy and all these other great things he's saying, very poorly veiled and poorly disguised attempt to really try and spread American superiority around the world at this time because this is the height of imperialism as well. America's trying to make its imperial mark on the world, Right. And back in 1893, there was a depression, a pretty severe depression that hit America. And this is kind of the perfect opportunity for Americans to start investing elsewhere in these foreign markets. And so American industries, they just don't have to rely on goods in the economy like in the States. Right here, we can start looking elsewhere for these things as well. And so now is the time that the U.S. is really going to be able to fulfill that desire and Wilson, he is really changing things up once he becomes president, once he is inaugurated and moves into the White House and takes office. He pulls these American bankers out of a six-nation project, a railroad project in China uh, that had been backed by President Taft. And he was saying, well, this encourages foreign intervention. It undermines Chinese authority because Justin." 1910, basically just a couple years before Wilson's in office, 1910, 1911, this is going on, the southern Chinese provinces, they're going to rebel against all this foreign intrusion, especially against the British that have been making their mark there for quite a while. And they decide to overthrow the monarchy. They overthrow the emperor and empress of China. And Wilson views this railroad project as being an insult to this new Chinese government, And the United States is also going to be the first major power to recognize this new Democratic Republic of China after their revolution in 1911. And in 1915, Wilson's also going to strongly oppose Japan's 21 demands for territorial and commercial privileges in the country of China. But right around, and China's not the only country that's having a revolution. Like I mentioned, you know, Nicaragua's got one going on. There's a lot of, you know, civil and political unrest around this time going around the world. And there is a revolution in Mexico that takes place right around the same time. In 1910, a revolution pushes Mexico into extreme chaos. And Wilson enters the White House in 1913. He had, there was the general Victoriano Huerta that rises as the new head of the Mexican government. And there's a lot of wealthy landowners, foreign investors that support Huerta. Uh, he because he's more likely to protect their interests, right? So that's why they support him uh, and their land holdings. And there's going to be a very brutal, bloody, gruesome civil war that is going to be in full swing pretty quickly. Wilson refuses to endorse Huerta, and instead he's going to put his support behind a gentleman named Benustiano Carranza. And Huerta is going to resign in 1914, and Carranza... Uh, It's going to form a new constitutionalist government, but he's pretty resistant to Wilson's suggestions and guidelines for running the government of Mexico. So, Wilson is then going to put his backing behind anyone want to take a guess? It's going to be a lovely gentleman named Francisco, a.k.a. Pancho Villa. Yeah, good old Pancho Villa. Uh, He was a peasant-born general that broke ranks with Carranza. And Wilson throws his support behind Pancho Villa. But a year later, Wilson's finally going to recognize Carranza and his regime. Kind of like he's the lesser of two evils at this point. And Villa turns against the U.S. He goes on a rampage and wreaks a lot of carnage in his path. Leaves a lot of devastation. In his path, he's gonna abduct and murder Americans from trains, lay waste to villages and towns in New Mexico. Uh, The U.S. government is gonna go on a massive manhunt to find Pancho Villa and his rebel forces, but the American troops are often gonna clash with the Mexican forces, but they're never gonna be fighting directly with Villa or his men. All right, and so I'm gonna leave this video just kind of the background here. I'm gonna stop it. And then just so we're not having too long of videos. And then I'm going to pick up on the road to war with World War One, guys. Okay. All right. So the road to war. In this instance, we're talking about World War One. So in Europe, there's this massive wave of nationalism that is spreading across the country in the latter part of the 19th century or 1800s we're talking about towards the turn of the 20th century and it's taking place in multiple countries. Uh the city states and various regions of Italy all unite and band together under one national Italian state. So we see like Florence and Rome, Tuscany, uh the Sicily, for instance, all these Different regions in Italy will all unite and band together. And you see the same thing happens in Germany. There are various city-states that had all been separate. But we see this like national pride, national unity to band together, come together. And it's taking place all over Europe at this time. And so, as this uh, national pride starts to grow in a country, so does imperialism. And militarism, right? We've talked a little bit about imperialism in past classes in the last little lecture. But uh, Germany is going to be led by good old Kaiser Wilhelm II. And he's very eager to grow a vast empire. And so Germany is going to align themselves with Turkey, which is the Ottoman Empire, essentially at this time. And Austria-Hungary which is hyphenated. It was all one country at one point. But they, the already established imperial powers of England and France, they're looking to try and contain Germany by supporting their enemy, Russia. And, because that's Germany's enemy at this time, is Russia. And by the summer of 1914 we see Europe is just overwhelmed with weapons and troops and armor-plated navies, like they're ready to go to war at a moment's notice, like at the drop of a pen, pretty much. So they're all linked to each other through all these webs of diplomatic and military alliances. And so they're all committed to war at a moment's notice. And the moment for this war comes on June 28th, 1914. It's going to be in the good old streets of Sarajevo, which is the capital of Bosnia. And Bosnia is going to be annexed by Austria-Hungary. So, it's going to be in the southwest region of Austria-Hungary, but it had once been part of Serbia, actually. Uh, But it leads to the spread of a lot of anger and resentment in Serbia that, you know, this region that had once been part of their country, it's now just taken by another country because they have, you know, more weapons, more people, more fancy stuff, basically, because Serbia is a pretty, uh, rural, impoverished country at this time. Uh, you know, they don't really have massive capabilities like a lot of the other imperial powers do. And so very few people, especially in America would recognize Serbia as anything more than like a spot on a map for the most part. But, uh, The hatred and resentment in Serbia is so great that there's going to be a terrorist organization called the Black Hand. And there was a young assassin named Gabrielo Princip. He assassinates, he guns down the Archduke of Austria-Hungary. He's the heir to the throne in Austria-Hungary. And the gentleman's name was Franz Ferdinand, was the Archduke. And his wife as well, this uh, Princip, guy from Serbia, he guns them down. He kills them. And so, Austria-Hungary is vowing revenge. And they're moving to retaliate against Serbia for their leader's death. And so, their rival, Russia, is going to call up their six-million-man army. They have the largest army, basically, in the world at this time. Russia does. But they call up their army to help the Serbs. To help little Serbia, right? Germany, is, since Austria-Hungary was their ally, they joined with G- Austria-Hungary. So, Germany and Austria-Hungary are on one side. Already, we got Russia and Serbia on the other side. France is then going to hop on the Russian side with Serbia. Austria-Hungary is then going to attack Serbia on June 28th. June 28th, yeah. Uh, Germany is going to declare war on Russia On August 1st, two days later, they're going to declare war on France, right? So, we are officially at war at this point. And Britain, Japan, Romania, later Italy, they're going to be rushing to the side of the Allies, which are with France and Russia and Serbia. And then Bulgaria and Turkey, they will be joining the central powers of Germany and Austria-Hungary. So, all on the Allies, just to recap here, we got... Serbia, Russia, France, Britain, Japan, even Japan will be sending some forces to Europe for this, uh, Romania, and Italy at one point as well. And then towards the very end, towards the end, we will eventually see the U.S. But on the central powers, we will see Bulgaria, Turkey, Germany, and Austria-Hungary. Right, So very few Americans, like I said, knew Serbia is anything more than a spot on a map, but uh, very few are even willing to go to war for Serbia, right? So what we kind of see since uh, nobody's really wanting to go to war is President Wilson, he is going to issue a declaration of neutrality and he's going to approve a plan to try and evacuate uh Americans that are stranded in Belgium and Europe at this time. So, and in a country that's as ethnically diverse as the United States, true impartiality is pretty much impossible, right? So Americans that are of um, German and Austrian descent, they naturally were sympathizing with the uh, central powers. Also Irish Americans are sympathizing with them at this time. And some people may find that odd or curious why Irish Americans would be citing With the Central Powers, and that's because Ireland is still part of England at this time, and there is still a lot of centuries-old domination, uh, British dominance over Ireland, and so not a lot of people are very happy with you know wanting to ally with Britain over this. You know, they hold a grudge big time, and so the bonds of a lot of language and culture history tends to tie most Americans to. Great Britain in the war effort on like whose side you're on, but uh, there's also the gratitude of French aid during the American Revolution that wasn't lost or forgotten on most Americans at this time, and so with this flood of war orders that we see during World War One, uh, the American economy is definitely gonna get a big boost. So are you guys? So, uh, between 1914 and 1916, trade with the Allies is going to rise from about $800 million to more than $3 billion. And the Allies eventually are going to borrow more than $2 billion from American banks to try and finance all their purchases. Whereas, in contrast, there's going to be a British blockade that pretty much reduces all American war goods trading with the central powers like Austria-Hungary, Germany, things of that, na- those countries there... Uh, it slows down to a trickle to where it eventually stops entirely. And so moving on to kind of how Wilson's diplomacy through all this. So uh, Wilson was insisting that all war powers should respect the right of neutrals to trade with any nation. He's going to be very hesitant to retaliate against Great Britain's blockade of Germany. So by the end of 1915, the U.S. Uh, was pretty much just accepting that British blockade. While American supplies were continuing to just flow to England. And so that ends, you know, pretty much true neutrality. And Germany engages then in a counter blockade of Great Britain. They have more than two dozen submarines or what they call untersea boats or undersea boats, U-boats, right? And before submarines, sea raiders were usually giving the crews and passengers of ships they were trying to raid the chance to escape. But the U boats surfaced to try and obey these conventions, they could pretty much just be blasted out of the water, right? They might even be rammed, right? So staying underwater and just attacking these ships by surprise gives them the advantage of, you know, safety, pretty much for the most part. So Wilson, he's going to be threatening to hold Germany to strict accountability. For any American losses Germany is promising not to sink any American ships but soon there's gonna be a bigger issue that takes the forefront and that's gonna be the safety of American passengers on these vessels of countries at war right okay so Germany's not gonna be attacking any American ships but what if there's Americans on like a British ship or a French ship right what do we do then so On May seventh, 1915, there was the British passenger liner, the Lusitania, that will be sunk, and it's going to list or go into the water so quickly that the lifeboats couldn't even be launched before it sank. Just a few years prior to this, we had the Titanic sinking in 1912, and nearly all 1,200 men, women, and children will die aboard the Lusitania, including about 128 Americans, And Germany is wanting to keep the U.S. out of the war. And it's engaging in two fronts at the same time. Basically, Germany is. So, in 1916, Germany is going to declare submarine warfare on all armed vessels, whether they're belligerent or neutral. So, a month later, there's going to be a U-boat commander that mistakes a French steamer called the Sussex for a mine layer. that they're like in the water laying mines, dropping mines in the water. But that's not what was happening. They end up torpedoing this unarmed vessel and several Americans will be injured in the incident. Wilson then is, he's already pretty upset as you can imagine, but then this happens and so he issues an ultimatum. So if Germany refuses to stop sinking non-military vessels, then the U.S. is going to break off their diplomatic relations, right? And war. Will it follow? We will declare war on Germany, is what he's saying. So, with that happening, uh, there's not enough U-boats to really control all the seas. Germany goes ahead and agrees to Wilson's terms. right? They pretty much abandon their counter-blockade at this point. Now, while hundreds of American men are going to be slipping across the border to enlist in the Canadian army, there will be uh, quite a few that go to enlist in Great Britain. Also in France with the French Foreign Legion. But most Americans agree neutrality is the wisest course of action. So there's a lot that agree that the U.S. has to prepare themselves in the event of war. Because right? we just don't have the manpower just yet. Because the army at this time in 1914 is only about 80,000 men. 80,000. Right? The Navy only has 37 battleships and there's barely just a handful of these brand new supercruisers that had recently been built. So by the end of 1915, there's a lot of frustration with the German submarines. So it leads Wilson to go ahead and join the cause, right? In Washington, he's going to be urging and pressing Congress to double up the army, increase the national guard, begin constructing the largest Navy in the world. And... This is preparedness, basically. We're going to be prepared in the event of war. Uh, But the Democrats also discover this kind of gives them some political power as well, especially with Wilson's presidential campaign when he's running for re-election in 1916. So Wilson, he's able to get re-elected in 1916, encouraging and urging military preparedness while simultaneously, like at the same time, he's campaigning Saying he kept us out of the war, and that's pretty much what gets him reelected, is that he kept us out of the war. Right, and so what finally brings the U.S. into war? The Zimmerman Telegram, guys. So the election's over at this point. Wilson opens up his final peace offensive. He's going to be asking the belligerents to state what their terms for a ceasefire are. No side responds. No country responds to this. So, and as Wilson's speaking, there's a fleet of U-boats cruising towards the British Isles. And just a few weeks earlier, German military leaders had persuaded the Kaiser, Wilhelm II, to take one last gamble and starve out the Allies into submission. So, on January 31st, 1917, the German ambassador in Washington announced that unrestricted submarine warfare would resume the very next day, on February 1st. So, Wilson asked Congress for the authority to arm our, the American merchant ships, and just cut off several relations with Germany. And British authorities at this time, they have been sitting on an intercepted telegram from the German foreign secretary, Arthur Zimmerman, to the Kaiser's ambassador in Mexico. So they already had this. They've been waiting for the right moment to slip it to the Americans. The British had this. And so what the Zimmerman telegram was says in the event the ambas- in the event um that the US enters the war, you know, World War 1, uh then the ambassador In Mexico, Germany's ambassador in Mexico was instructed to then offer the country of Mexico guns, money, all their lost territory in Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, if they would attack the U.S. So it's basically if the U.S. decides to enter the war, Mexico is going to attack the U.S. and keep it preoccupied while Germany can then focus on the European front and not have to worry about American intervention, really. And when they won the war... Germany would give not just Mexico, you know, guns and money to fight the war, but all that lost territory from the Mexican-American war, right? And Wilson is livid when he reads this telegram. He knows that just taking it to Congress on his own may not be enough. So just to make sure that there is no question whatsoever about a war declaration from Congress, he releases the Zimmerman telegram to the press. And pretty soon the American public will be supporting the decision to go to war. And it's pretty much in the bag at that point. So kind of what's going on in society at this time. So while the U.S. is debating entry into the Great War, World War I, the Allies are very close to losing it. So the initial German assault was in 1914. The war kind of just settles into the stalemate where neither side is winning or losing. It's just kind of a draw for a while. And there's going to be troops that dig up ditches and they're usually going to be about six to eight feet deep, four to five feet wide. And it's so they can seek shelter and safety from all these bullets and grenades and all this heavy artillery that's coming out. So there's going to be about 25,000 miles of trenches that are cutting across all of Europe at this time. And men will sometimes live in them for years. They'll fall victim to disease, lice, rats. You know, plagues of rats, etc. So, and when men try to, you know, go over the top of the trenches and to no man's land is this area between the trenches. They're going to get torn apart by machine guns, which had the capability at this point to fire 600 rounds a minute. There's also poison gas, mustard gas, and chlorine gas are developed at this time. Poison gases are going to choke these guys out where they stand, you know, if they don't have a gas mask. And so technology is starting to turn war into a very nasty business. And there is a specific battle called the Battle of the Somme River in 1916 where a million men were killed in just four months of fighting. And late in the war, we start seeing these new armored tanks that give the advantage back to the offense with the allies and everything. You want to Go over the top of the trench and attack the other side. Well, you can seek shelter behind these new armored tanks. And they have these caterpillar treads, which can go over any debris on the battlefield pretty quickly without getting ripped to shreds. And at the same time, there's a gentleman named Vladimir Lenin that he is rushing home to Russia. And he finds a bunch of food riots, coal shortages, protests against the government, which mainly it's actually against the uh, Romanov royal family at this time uh, that leads to revolution known as the Bolshevik Revolution. And Lenin had been exiled in Switzerland during the early, early stages of this Russian Revolution. He returns to lead the Bolshevik Party to power in November of 1917 and since they're preoccupied with everything going on Soon, the Russians are going to negotiate a separate peace treaty with Germany. And it's going to transfer a million German soldiers to the Western Front for this coming spring offensive. So Germany doesn't have to fight, you know, on the Eastern Front with Russia and also in the West with Britain and France, right? So looking at the U.S., the U.S. barely had 180,000 men in uniform. To try and raise the force, Congress is going to pass the Selective Service Act, or known as the Draft, in May of 1917. So feelings against the draft are running pretty high. Some progressives will be more inclined to see military service as a way to try and unite America and promote democracy around the world. The but uh, there's about 24 million men that will be registered in the selective service draft. Almost 3 million will be actually drafted. And another 2 million will volunteer. Most will be white, all will be young between the ages of 21 and 31 and several thousand women. Also, will be serving as military clerks, telephone operators, nurses with the Red Cross, for instance. And when we have such a high immigrant population as well at this time, there's nearly one in draftee in five. So about 20% of these draftees that have been born in another country. So we have a high immigrant drafting uh, population. And Mexican-Americans, African-Americans, they'll both be volunteering in very disproportionately high numbers. Mexican-Americans will be integrated into regular units, but African-Americans will remain segregated at this time. They'll quickly fill up all four of these uh, all-black army regiments. Uh, There's eight National Guard uh, all-black regiments that are already in existence. They quickly fill them up. Abroad, there's going to be about 200,000 black troops that will be serving in France. Only about a fifth of them, so only about 40,000, will be permitted in actual combat. Southern Democrats in Congress were opposed to training African Americans with uh, weapons of any kind. Four regiments of the all-black 93rd Division uh, brigaded with the French Army. Uh, They're going to be among the first African Americans in the trenches, and they'll be among one of the most decorated units in the U.S. Army at this time. But there's a lot of racial violence, as you can imagine, right? Right that flares up among the troops. The worst episode is going to happen in Houston, Texas, in the summer of 1917. And being harassed by a lot of white soldiers and by the Jim Crow laws of the city, there's some seasoned, well-trained black regulars that riot, and they will kill 17 white civilians. Their whole battalion will be disarmed, sent under arrest to New Mexico, Thirteen troopers will be condemned to death and hanged within days. So it's all too quickly for them to even file an appeal, unfortunately. But uh, progressive reformers they don't miss the opportunity to put all these new social sciences that have been coming up in the progressive era. They're putting them into work in the army, right? Most recruits have fewer than seven years of education, but they still have to be classified, assigned very quickly to units. And so psychologists, they see the chance to use these new intelligence tests to help the army out, prove their own theories about the value of intelligence quotient or IQ and measuring brain power. And the army will actually stop using uh, the testing program in January of 1919, but there's going to be a lot of schools across the country that adopt this program after the war and it reinforces a lot of ethnic and racial prejudices. All right, so what was American society like during the Great War, during World War I? So there's a lot of disagreement on how they were going to finance the war. Ultimately, new taxes are going to pay for about a third of all the war costs. There's going to be these new bonds called victory and liberty bonds. There's also war savings certificates that end up paying for the rest of the war effort. So there's very soon also going to be a brand new uh, agency called the War Industries Board, the WIB, that they're going to coordinate and organize, plan all the production through these networks of industrial and trade associations. Rather than order these firms to comply and then risk some lawsuits, right, against the government, the WIB is instead going to be relying on persuasion, right? How are they going to persuade? Well, through publicity, Also, these new contracts called cost-plus contracts that cover all the production costs plus a guaranteed profit for these businesses, right? So it's like, if you help us, not only are we going to guarantee, you know, we get everything paid for and everything made, right? We'll pay for everything. We'll give you money to pay this, plus we'll throw in some extra money, you know, a little bit of a profit. So the modern uh, bureaucratic state that we see is going to be getting this big boost during the 18 months of American participation in the Great War or World War One, as we know it today. Speeding trends are already underway. There's going to be about 5,000 new federal agencies that start to centralize and really concentrate federal authority and cooperating also with the business and labor as well. So there's going to be a number of federal employees that will more than double in this 16 or in this two-year time period. So between 1916-1918. So we see more than 850,000 federal employees in the U.S. government at this time. And the wartime bureaucracy is going to be dismantled pretty much completely at the end of the war. But it does set an important precedent for the future that we'll see in other wartime uh, years. So, war work. What are we seeing with the war? What are people getting jobs at, right? So, in 1917, American workers, they're going to be calling over about 4,000 strikes. This is the most in American history, right? To try and keep the factories running, President Wilson creates the National War Labor Board, the NWLB early in 1918 and what this agency did, they arbitrate or mediate more than a thousand labor disputes during the ward and they helped to increase wages. They also established overtime pay for employees and in return for no strike pledges, the board's also going to guarantee the right of unions to organize also bargain collectively, like all together, you know, with the management And we're also going to see the uh, membership in the American Federation of Labor, the AFL, will almost double by 1919. So the wartime demand for workers, it brings nearly a million more women into the labor force. Most will be young and single. Some will take over jobs once held by men as being like railroad engineers, drill press operators, electric lift truck drivers, right? Like forklifts, basically. Uh, The pre-war trend towards these higher paying jobs will intensify. Most women will still earn less than men that they're replacing, right? Uh, Some of the biggest, most spectacular gains in defense and government work will just evaporate after the war because male veterans are returning and the country's just demobilizing. They don't need it anymore. So women in war work really start to reinvigorate re-energize a lot of these women's causes and organizations the radical suffragist Alice Paul uh, she had been a big part of the suffragist movement to get women the right to vote later in the 19th amendment but uh, some others they had all been protesting against the war and now they're going to be arguing for women's rights including the right to vote right and on the basis of why they should have the right to vote. So uh, women are working beside men in wartime factories and offices, nursing stations at home or on the battlefront over in Europe. They're going to be working in a lot of these patriotic or volunteer organizations. And so since they're all working and contributing so heavily to the war effort in the country at this time, women are able to argue more convincingly for both economic and political quality. So, one step in this direction is going to come after the war with the ratification of the 19th Amendment in 1920 that grants women the right to vote, finally. So, war work that we're seeing, it's sparking a lot of migrations of laborers. So, as the fighting abroad starts choking off and stunting, very heavily restricting immigration, there's also the draft that's starting to deplete the workforce, So factory owners, they look all over the country for workers, for their employees. So industrial cities, no matter how small, are soon going to be swelling with newcomers. Uh, We're going to see between 1917 and 1920, there's about 150,000 Mexicans that will cross the border into Texas, California, New Mexico, Arizona, all those states right along the Mexican border there. Most will be working on farms and ranches, uh, and they were able to... Uh, have their deferment from military service granted because they're agricultural laborers. They're vital to our nation's economy, right? So during the war, there's going to be more than 400,000 African-Americans that will be moving to booming industries or 400,000 people in general that move into these booming industries of the North and mainly unskilled. uh, Some will be semi-skilled. They're going to be working in steel mills in Pennsylvania uh, also, war plants in Massachusetts, brickyards in New Jersey, places like that. So, these big migrations of African Americans, especially, starts to aggravate a lot of these racial tensions. And there's going to be lynching parties that murder about 38 black Southerners in 1917. 58 will be killed in 1918. And 1919, after the war ends... More than 70 will be hanged, some of them still in their uniforms. And housing shortages, job competition, a lot of that helps to ignite a lot of these race riots, especially not just in the South, but also in the North, right? In almost every city, there's going to be black citizens stirred by a lot of this war rhetoric, of freedom and democracy. They start showing new militancy that they're not just going to take it anymore. And around this same time during War, World War I, Americans fall victim to some pretty ruthless hysteria and paranoia. Uh, they have some help, though. All right. Wilson knew how reluctant Americans have been to enter the war. In 1917, he's going to create a Committee on Public Information, the CPI, to really firm up and cement the Americans' commitment to the war. So as this war fever basically is growing and mounting, voluntary patriotism grows into this big wave of, well, let's have 100% Americanism. And so it breeds a lot of distrust of all aliens. So people from other countries, radicals, pacifists, dissenters, you know, got to distrust all of them at this time in America. And German Americans especially will be, the main targets of all this. Congress gives a lot of this hysteria even more legal bite when they pass the Espionage and Sedition Acts in 1917 and 1918. Both set very harsh penalties for any action that hinders the war effort in any way or that could be viewed as being even remotely unpatriotic. So, following its passage, there's going to be about 1,500 citizens that will be arrested for offenses that include denouncing the draft, just urging people not to enlist, uh, criticizing the Red Cross, also complaining about wartime taxes. Just suck it up. Just deal with it, folks. you got to pay your taxes, right? Don't say nothing when it's in the war or you might get jailed for it, right? And there's going to be a Supreme Court case in 1919 called Shank. S-C-H-E-N-C-K versus the United States. And the Supreme Court was unanimous in their decision with this one, actually. But it holds up the conviction of a Socialist Party officer that had mailed out pamphlets urging resistance to the draft. And in times of war, so we're kind of seeing that civil liberties can just be kind of ignored with when it's regards to matters of national security. Or at least that's what Congress is claiming at the time. So, when does the actual, like, fighting of Americans in Europe begin? So, the first American doughboys that they call these soldiers during World War I, the first American doughboys land in France in June of 1917. Very few will actually see battle, though. And there was a general named John Pershing. He holds back his troops because they're pretty raw. They're not seasoned. You know, you got to give them some time to train and break in, basically. So, he holds them back. He separates them in a very distinct American expeditionary force to preserve their identity, avoid any Allied disagreements over battle strategy, things like that. And so, in the spring of 1918, the Germans are pushing towards Paris. John Pershing, General Pershing, he rushes about 70,000 American troops to the front. And American units, they help block the Germans at the town of Chateau Thierry and also at another area called Belleau Wood. Good old French towns, right? Probably butchering how I'm pronouncing them, but that's okay, right? So, in September of 1918, about half a million American soldiers, there's also going to be a smaller number of French troops. They'll overrun the German stronghold at Saint-Michel in only about four days. So, since the German army is in retreat, the civilian morale is pretty low in Germany at this time. So, Germany's leaders, they seek out an armistice. And they hope to try and negotiate terms along the lines that have been laid out by Woodrow Wilson in a speech he gave to Congress in January of 1918. And Wilson, in this speech, he's talking about this vision of peace. And his vision of peace encompasses 14 points. If you ever heard about Wilson's 14 points, this is the speech that we're talking about here. And the main provisions for it are calling for open diplomacy. Among all the countries, free seas, free trade, disarmament, right? Lower your weapons, like scale down your weapons forces, Uh, democratic self-rule, also an association of nations or a league of nations, as it will be called, uh, to guarantee the collective security of the world. Right, And so it's nothing less than this entirely new world order that's going to end all this selfish nationalism, imperialism, also war. uh Wilson's ideals stir up a lot of these German liberals and October sixth. Wilson will receive a telegram from Berlin requesting an immediate truce on the basis of his fourteen points within a month. Turkey and Austria-Hungary will surrender early in November of nineteen eighteen. The Kaiser will be overthrown. He will flee to the neutral country of Holland, also known as the Netherlands. And on November 11th, 1918, German officers will file into the Allied headquarters that have been located in a converted railroad cart in France, and they will sign the armistice. This is where we get Veterans Day, folks. On the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, the war to end all wars had ended. The actual treaty of Versailles, like to end the war, was signed at 11 a.m. on November 11th, 1918. That's where it comes from. And for a long, long time, it was known as Armistice Day. But later in the 20th century, it's going to be renamed in the U.S. at least to Veterans Day. And so kind of what we see of the legacy of the war here. So of the 2 million Americans that serve in France... About 116,500 will die. Uh, by comparison, the war claimed 2.2 2 million Germans, 1.7 million Russians, 1.4 million French, 1.2 million Austro-Hungarians, and nearly a million British. So the American contribution uh, was very crucial. Obviously, they provided vital convoys at sea, fresh troops on the land. And the U.S. is going to come out of the war stronger than ever, but the rest of Europe isn't going to be so lucky. Right? But right in this same time period, 1918. So in March of 1918, there's going to be a young cook who is a young company cook in Fort Riley, Kansas. He reports to the infirmary on a sick call with an achy head, an achy muscles, a sore throat, a low-grade fever, and what it is, is it was influenza. Very dangerous for infants, uh, the elderly. Normally, it's no issue for the average young ad- adult male, you know, in the prime of his life. Uh, but by noon on this day, 107 soldiers will report similar symptoms. Within a week, there's going to be more than 500. Cases of the flu, of this influenza will be reported in every state, even Alcatraz Island in San Francisco, right? And so what we're seeing with this influenza pandemic in 1918 to 1919 is robust, healthy young people are dying in incredibly high numbers. And the first wave of the influenza is going to kill very few. But if you know anything about viruses, as the season progresses, as an influenza or flu season progresses, the virus mutates, right? Influenza virus mutates. And so as it's mutating over the next year, those achy muscle, sore throat, dizziness, uh, achy joints, right? Low-grade fever, that then progresses to dizziness, vomiting, labored breathing. And so we see more and more people will be dying from complications of pneumonia because of these increased symptoms. That we see. So, soldiers and others living in very close quarters are especially vulnerable to catching influenza. Also, young adults uh, between the ages of 20 and 34 for every 50 people infected, one will die. And in the US alone, we see the death toll will rise to more than 600,000. Uh, that's definitely more than the American battle deaths in World War I, but also when you combine. World War One, World War II, the Korean War, and Vietnam War, all of the American battle deaths in all four of those military complex, conflicts combined, the influenza pandemic in 1918 still killed more people than those. Yeah, And so the U.S. is actually going to be the country least affected by the pandemic. American soldiers, uh, they carried this disease from... Uh, the U.S. to Europe. It jumps from one country to another in the spring and summer of 1918. French troops and civilians suffer first, then British and German. A lot of guys catch it in the trenches, right? And then we see uh steamships, right? And railroads that carry people all over the globe. So, virtually no place in the world is safe. Maybe Antarctica, right? That Maybe Greenland, maybe. Right? Those very isolated, remote places. But uh, very few places around the world are left not affected by this influenza pandemic. And so, by the summer of 1918, the virus jumped from North America and Europe to then Asia and Japan. It's by that fall, it's in Africa and South America. So, But what's kind of strange is 16 months after the virus first appeared, it just vanishes. So there's some conservative or low estimates that put the worldwide death toll at around 50 million, but it makes this 1918-1919 influenza pandemic the most lethal outbreak of disease on an annual basis in human history, right? Even compared to what's currently going on with uh, coronavirus and COVID-19, it still hasn't claimed as many people as the 1918 pandemic did. So what's kind of going on with after the war and everything? So the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, So in England, the prime minister, his name is David Lloyd George. In France, it's Georges. So it's like Georges, but Georges Clemenceau. In Italy, the leader is Vittorio Orlando. And Woodrow Wilson, they all constitute pretty much the big four at the conference. That's going to include 27 countries. And the Allies are very eager to see Germany crushed and disarmed. They had already divided up all the territories of the Central Powers and secret treaties. Germany offered to surrender on the basis of the 14 points by Wilson. Uh, but the Allies, of like Britain and France especially, they refused to accept them. So absent from this conference are going to be the Russians, right? They had already negotiated the separate peace treaty. So none of the Western democracies were recognizing this Bolshevik regime in Moscow. And it was kind of out of fear that this communist revolution might spread to other countries and around the world. So instead, France and Britain, they're helping to finance a civil war to try and overthrow the Bolsheviks. But Wilson's open diplomacy is going to be conducted kind of behind closed doors by the big four. The only mention of disarmament is involving Germany, right? They were barred from rearming themselves. Germany's going to be also saddled with the responsibility of the entire war. They have to take on a $33 billion reparations debt, which only recently, within maybe 10 years, I'd have to look up the specific year that Germany made their last World War I reparations debt payment, but it took them close to 100 years to pay off that debt. And Wilson's success has come in the form of creating about a dozen new states in Europe. Uh, They're going to include Yugoslavia, Hungary, and Austria will be separated, Poland. There's also a newly created Czechoslovakia. And so this contains millions of ethnic Germans that kind of complicate all these European relations for decades to come. And so the old uh, German and Turkish empires in the Middle East... In Africa, they become responsibility of France and England. Japan takes over the German possessions in the Far East. In Asia, Wilson never gives up on his main goal to create a League of Nations. And he had given so much ground with the negotiations because he believed this new world organization was going to correct any mistakes with the peace settlement. And Article 10 of the Treaty of Versailles bound all these members to respect each other's independence and territory, and to join and band together against any attacks. So, kind of fighting for the treaty to get uh, ratified here in the U.S. So, Wilson comes back to the U.S., and he's facing a lot of opposition in Congress. And in the off-year elections in 1918, there were a lot of voters unhappy with the wartime controls. So, there's also new taxes, attacks on civil liberties, and so it gives both houses over to the opposition party of the Republicans. Because Wilson's a Democrat at this time. So, I mean, they fall into a divided government, basically, at this time. And Henry Cabot Lodge of Massachusetts, he's going to become the majority leader in the Senate. And he gets up a lot of support to oppose Wilson in the Senate. And if you know anything about government, in order to actually approve a treaty made with another country two-thirds of the Senate majority have to agree to it, have to ratify it. The president can talk all he wants to about the terms to actually prove it and go into effect. Two-thirds majority in the Senate has to agree. And so Henry Cabot Lodge, he's building up a lot of support to oppose Wilson here. And so Lodge is very much opposed to this League of Nations. Most of the country is actually on board with it, but Lodge isn't. So he is worried that the League of Nations is going to force Americans to subject themselves to the will of other nations, including congressional prerogative of bringing the country into war, right? He doesn't like that. So Wilson's only hope of winning that two-thirds majority would be with a compromise somehow, but he's resistant to any changes. So Wilson goes on a speaking tour all across the country, traveling by railroad. Uh, but he's not in the greatest health at this time. Uh, one evening, Wilson collapsed after speaking to a crowd of about 10,000 people about the American deaths in France, how they can be spared this in the future if America joins the League of Nations. And four days after he's rushed to the White House, after he collapsed here, he four days later, he falls in the bathroom. He's going to be knocked unconscious by a stroke. And he's never going to fully recover. Who's actually going to take over running the country? Very few textbooks mention this, but actually his wife, Edith Wilson, she's kind of our first unelected female president, if you will. She controlled who Wilson spoke to, who spoke to him, who saw him. She kept his ill health under wraps, like behind like closed lips, right? She was very controlling of that, and so... She kind of ran the country for the last little bit of his presidency until his death, right? So, uh, late 1919, Lodge finally reports the treaty out of committee with 14 different amendments uh, to match up Wilson's 14 points. And the most important was asserting the U.S. has no obligation to aid League members unless Congress consents to it. And Wilson refuses to accept any of these amendments. He asked the Democrats in the Senate to vote against the treaty. And when the amendment treaty finally comes before the Senate in March of 1920, there was enough Democrats that have broken from President Wilson that they produce a majority in favor, actually, of the treaty. But it's not that required two-thirds that he really needed. So not until 1920 does Congress finally pass a joint resolution out of both houses that actually ends the war. So even though the war had been over for three years, our Congress never actually said it was over for three years. But in America, at the same time, we're also seeing a big red scare. So a lot of spontaneous violence, extremism, it breaks out because Americans were believing they're under-attacked by homegrown and foreign-sponsored radicals right the uh, menace of radicalism is g- going to be very much overblown and radicals at first hoped that the success of the Russian revolution would help reverse you know their fortunes in the US most Americans found the prospect of these bolshevik agitators to be threatening right especially after march of 1919 and that's when the new russian government forms the common turn and the common turn's whole purpose was to spread revolution abroad In other countries. And in 1919, there's going to be some dissidents that desert the socialists to form the more radical Communist Labor Party. Right? About the same time, there's going to be a group of mostly ethnic Slavs that create a separate Communist Party. And the two organizations together will only count 40,000 members. I mean, no more than 40,000 in the U.S. But uh, the Attorney General of the U.S., Mitchell Palmer, he's going to launch a series of raids known as the Palmer Raids in November of 1919 and again in January of 1920. It's going to be in over 30 cities all across the country. And government agents, what they're doing at this time is they're invading private homes, meeting halls, pool parlors. They take several thousand alleged communists into custody without warrants. They beat anyone that resists them. There's going to be over 200 aliens, most of whom had no criminal record, that will be deported to the Soviet Union, which is the new name of Russia at this time. Palmer overreaches himself by predicting there's going to be a revolutionary uprising for May 1st, 1920, known as May Day, right? Nothing happens, though. Four months later, there's going to be a wagon load of bombs that explodes on Wall Street. And what Palmer does is he blames it all as a Bolshevik conspiracy, and despite having 35 deaths and more than 200 injuries, Americans see it as the work of a few very demented radicals and they just kind of go on about business as usual. Right? But there you have it, guys. That's the end of World War I and the aftermath with the influenza pandemic and kind of what American society was like at the time. hope you guys enjoyed it.